Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and everybody in between, that is Eddie Vega. And that is Chibi Ordunia. And this is Words and Shit. Brought to you by The Blah Poetry Spot and Write Art Out. The show where you get to know the person behind the poetry. Eduardo. Yes. It is no secret that we are both of the Latin background. Not a secret at all, no. Mexican-Americans. Yes. Tejanos. Tejanos. Chicanos. Chicano. And part of that is the beauty of multiple cultures, right? That's right, yeah. Uh, because you get that in Texas. It's a good little amalgam of cultures, especially in South Texas where we're from. But I'm curious. Have you ever lived outside of the United States? Interestingly enough, I lived in Mexico for most of a year after college. Oh. And I was working uh, under the table, earning cash. I mean, it was rural development. It was helping out people, uh, full-time volunteering. Some would say missionary work, but they were paying me in cash. So I was working illegally in Mexico. I mean, I don't consider that working illegally. That's just earning tips and on I the side. My visa. Yeah, I was like a stereotype, except on the other side of the border. Ah, where in Mexico? I lived in Coatzacoalcos, Veracruz. Mm. I spent a lot of time in Oaxaca. Mm. Living that tropical life and that deep Mexico life. Oaxaca is gorgeous. Oh, yeah, maybe so. I mean, the yeah, yeah, yeah. The Coatzacoalcos is on the on the sea. Uh, but it's an oil town, and there's really not a lot there except uh, Pemex. So it's not like <laughs> paradise that you might think of. But, but how about now, if I remember correctly, you kind of lived abroad too a little bit, didn't you? I did. There was this moment in uh, college where I studied abroad and uh, spent, uh, what was it, like a semester, like half a year in Dublin, Ireland. Oh, that's right. And uh, I got to tell you, I learned one, the Irish and the Mexicans have a lot in common. They do. They do. A lot in common. Um, and two, I had to make sure that everybody knew that I was not an American. I was not a Texan. <laughs> I was an Austinite. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that excuses a lot of things. Because that was back in 2008. So we had just spent eight years of the Bush administration. Uh -huh. You know, like people knew. Texas and had an idea of what Texans were. And I was like, wait, 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 wait. I come from Austin. <laughs> Small little blue. Yeah, they, didn't, they didn't know. Yeah. Because I went to, I was in on Ireland for, for about 10 days and there was a cab driver who was asked by, by a kid that was trying to sell us some drugs. Like uh, we just said, no, but he was trying, he said, what do you got? And he says, I don't know. I think they're Yanks. <laughs> no, not at all. But I ask because I think traveling and living abroad, living outside of your bubble is such a formative part of what makes up a person, especially as one continues to understand the worldview of things. And we had this amazing conversation with Alexandra Vandekamp, who I came to learn because I didn't know about this about her until we had this conversation, uh, spent uh, quite a number of years living in Madrid and how yeah. she attributes that to kind of like the way she sees the world and her art and her marriage and everything. So much of her, like everything from uh, the way she saw the world to the way she spoke Spanish. Yeah. yeah. 
Because I've interacted with a bunch of Spaniards and they do not speak the Spanish that I speak. <laughs> I have no idea what they're saying. <laughs> but in any case, let's uh, dive into this conversation with Alexander Vantikamp. Alexandra Van de Kamp, the executive director of Gemini Inc., San Antonio's Writing Arts Center. Her most recent books of poems are Kiss Hierarchy by Raymond Press and The Park of Upside Down Chairs by CW Books. She has also published several chapbooks and has won the 2010 Burnside Review Chapbook Contest with her book Dear Jean Seberg. Her poems have been published in journals nationwide, including the Texas Observer, the Cincinnati Review, the Connecticut Review, Denver Quarterly, Washington Square, 32 Poems, San Antonio Express News, and many more. She's got been nominated for Pushcart Prizes five times and for Best of the Net. And she, you know, I've been working with Gemini Inc. for a few years now, and she is a joy to work with. I'm so glad to have her here with us. Ladies and gentlemen, Alexandra Van de Camp. How are you? Hey, everyone. Great. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. No, for being here. And I'm <laughs> monitoring the comments. Y'all, I'm monitoring the comments. We, even before you came on screen, we had like three or four people being like, I love Alexandra. Oh, that's so nice. Yay. I really appreciate people taking time out on a Thursday night because I'm actually finding in our new time, Thursday nights are kind of a busy Zoom night. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, it's like our new social like i don't know, calendar right uh-huh uh-huh because friday <laughs> nights are for drinking heavily <laughs> <laughs> all right well we're so excited to have you and to share this virtual space with you so let's go ahead and dive in the way we do every week and just hand the floor over to you ma'am please grace us with some poetry okay cool um so I was looking through some poems. I'm making my third book of poems. I actually have 50 pages. I'm kind of excited. It's untitled still. Um, but I think I'll start with a poem from my last published book. It looks like this. Kiss Hierarchy. The title actually comes from an Anais Nin quote, um, who's an amazing writer. And I thought I would start kind of with a cinematic poem and one that's about hurricanes because unfortunately for good or bad we're in hurricane season um, i'm a bit of a film buff and i love bogart and bacall um, and they have a classic which many of you i'm sure know a classic uh black and white 1940s movie called key largo so this is a poem about that film and that kind of interesting atmosphere in the florida keys right before a hurricane hits and there's a couple of gangsters that suddenly knock on your hotel door so dear key largo for bogart and bacall if I were a hotel, if, if, sorry, starting over, if life were a hotel, it would at times buck and swell. The temperature is on the rise, the waves muddy as regret and not receding. Do you play the ponies? The long shot is only your wrists, pale as snow and thrust out into the world, a cacophony of small time criminals and masters of the fix. Each man his own version of a war, his hope faulty as electrical wiring in a storm. And what about the girls? They wait like potted plants. They thrive only in the spotlight of someone else's arms. But if you sense the pressure dip and rise, like a barometer, they take the world in stride. 
The shutters whack and tremble. The hurricane lamps are in the shape of tears. She's a widow and he's a wanderer. The father's a cripple and the gangsters pace upstairs. Someone gets smacked around. Someone else dies with an unloaded gun dropping from their hands. The wind ignores the plot unfolding inside and tosses the palm trees around like dice. Gee, fella, can I have a drink? There's a singer past her prime, her boyfriend, the mob king, sweating upstairs. There's a widow and a wanderer. That was a close shave. The local Native Americans pound on the door, want out of the storm. The ceiling fan spins like a headache that won't end. What do you do with a gun's black throat poking into your ribs? Funny how a decision can tip when a little fear is added into the mix. Hope is squeamish, patriotism wary, and the mobsters are peddling counterfeit money. Who, after all, is the real public enemy? The gangsters or your own thoughts, both equally capable of holding you hostage? Meanwhile, Bacall turns her face toward Bogart and the camera stalls. The hurricane subsides, and the pale flickering light sliding across her cheeks would take a lifetime to describe. So that's a great post-World War II classic noir film, um, kind of an homage to the world of movies. And I'll read about two more poems. I'm working on this third collection. As I said, I seem slightly obsessed with time I think it has something to do with being healthily in my middle middle age years. But um, so here's a letter to time. Dear time, I thought there was an agreement here, a fistful of birds that I could carry from one moment to the next in my half-closed hands without being bitten by their peculiar beaks. A day I'm finding is a letter written in someone else's script a kind of wobbly transcription, the air brushes along my lips. The trees murmur like deceased aunts spilling cups of tea in their ginger laps. Lips, laps, the lush insistence of you time, pushing against everything we do. You are a shivering, unflinching closeness, a tune we all have stuck in our heads as we lift blue towels from the washing machine, drag our minds through the news, Tally the dead, frail as daffodils trailing their stubborn pollen along our outstretched arms. I wake with a quaking inside me, a to-do list of vitamin pills, the precise wording of half-written emails, and conversations intricate as medieval tapestries, glistening with their multitude of tiny threads. I write to you, dear time, minister of fear and sex and, and the hope of the body, to inject purple breath into my afternoon, to grab at the visible tremor of a tree's fog-laced leaves, to note the street lamp in a Magritte urban square, the oncoming darkness momentarily stalled before that quiet glow. I want to stuff my mind with all the living I can, mortality be damned. Let's relish another tablespoon of that tarragon-seasoned lobster sauce against the gray glass of a Houston skyline. How a delicate terror builds itself within me. Uh, and then um, I've been playing with repetition. 
So this is a poem that definitely employs that. It's called Plot. If I trusted light less, its appearance each dawn backlighting the trees, its steady strip tease peeling the night away and tossing styrofoam cups into the humid street. If I didn't notice dead birds, their bodies torqued and stopped, gray tufted and blood interrupted. If I hadn't needed surgery at 53, one ovary misfiring and fatigued like a bored orchid dropping nauseous petals into the abdomen's dark. If the body were not a jabbering birdhouse shut to the light. If gray were not my go-to color, its rain sag in the clouds, its damp prickling the plot, its private detectives hunkered inside my blood. If I hadn't been born a twin, constantly divisible by two, my heartbeat smothered by my brother, so no stethoscope could find me, um, could predict my cat out of a hat surprise on the day of my birth. If politics seemed less like day old toast reheated each dawn, if panic didn't swell in me like an itchy cloud of bobbing bees, if Madrid had not been the city in which I learned to breathe, what if I, what if it had been Istanbul or San Francisco? By breathe, I mean a certain settling inside the meandering crevices and avioli of the lungs, a deeper dreaming inside myself. If I didn't adore a cup of coffee singeing my lips each morning or the smudged people in daguerreotypes, if people's remarks didn't click and clack like shiny marbles inside my brain and the squirrel didn't rotate a black acorn manically in its glossy paws. Um, I think I'll just sneak one short one in and then I am looking forward to questions and conversations. Um, this poem's called Shadow and Tail, and this is um, a shout out to Naomi Shebnai. She um, chose it for the Texas Observer and it just meant a great deal to me. It was one of those poems where I wrote it a year ago and then it came out um, you know, just like a month ago and it seemed COVID-like even though it was written before COVID. So it's like poems can know things I think we don't even know, but um, it's a nature, nature poem kind of that takes an interesting twist. It's called Shadow and Tail. Wildflowers bleed yellow and scarlet along the interstate. The sky opens its staring eyes. All is good until the squirrel jumps across the road and we feel that body's soft fist under one wheel, then the next, a decidedly compact and visceral death. Next day, squirrels in our backyard grasp the trees, a furred syntax moving along the swerve of oak branches and city wires, a splayed feet Barnum and Bailey circus. Their genus, their genius, Scurrius, derived from the Greek for shadow and tail, because they reside under the shade of their sumptuous tails. Now a squirrel equals for me its umbrella of portable darkness. I am juxtaposed against more than I can keep count of, garden hoses like sleeping snakes on the pippled ground, the landlord's dusty trellis with one shrunken rose, an unsolved murder-suicide that takes place three blocks away, and I hear of only days after it happens. 
and the rhododendron leaves on a nearby bush, fat and shining like elegant serving spoons. Thanks. <laughs> standing ovation, standing ovation. Everybody in the room is happy for you. <laughs> no, that, that means a lot. Yeah. yeah. No, that was fantastic. I have to I have to say, uh, because they asked us to say, but one of the people that says that they love you lots is David Samuel Levinson. Oh, thanks, David. <laughs> um, but I wanted to start by asking a little bit about you and your and your and your personal life. So you came here from New York. Um, yeah. your husband got a job at the university here. And so you uh, y'all uplifted your life and came to the South. <laughs> yeah. How was that transition for you? Because you've clearly, I'm, it's no secret, you love San Antonio and the community here. Uh, so how was that transition from the Northeast to the deep South Texas? <laughs> um, it was interesting. I mean, I lived in Brooklyn, you know, in the heart of the city for six years, but then my husband, William and I moved out to Long Island to Stony Brook and that's where we were. We were at Stony Brook University. My husband's an academic librarian um, and I was teaching, believe it or not, writing and rhetoric on the university level um, and enjoying it. It was a great writing department there. It wasn't creative writing, mind you, but it was writing and rhetoric and um, you know, pretty much happy there and was gonna stay there for a while, but we got a little restless um, my husband's from Texas. He grew up in Austin. And we felt like, okay, we've been up in the Northeast for a while. Let William be a little closer to his family. And he just started doing that librarian search and all these jobs popped up in Texas. To be honest, we were kind of looking at Colorado. That's where my husband went to university and he loves that state. But William told me that I would probably love San Antonio. And when he saw that UTSA had a job and it was to be head of reference services, which was you know, something that interested him, he sent out the resume and got the interview and went down there. And, I, and he's told me I would love San Antonio. I'd been to Austin for maybe a day, but um, my in-laws live in rural Texas, like two hours north of Dallas. And I hadn't made it to San Antonio on any of our trips back to meet my husband's family. So I came here blind. I'd never been to San Antonio before, but my husband and I've lived in a lot of places. You know, we met in Spain, believe it or not, and lived in Madrid for years. And we kind of knew our traveling selves pretty well. And I trusted him. And then I looked up San Antonio. One, there was a lot of great coffee places too. It just looked super cool. <laughs> it looked totally cultural. I loved the idea of like, you know, the diverse community here, you know, um, the Latinx history and all that stuff feeding into just everyday life here. And I felt pretty, I didn't feel at home right away, but I felt mm. I never regretted the decision, you know mm. what I mean? And then immediately, and I was welcomed pretty nicely by the community here. I was unemployed for the first four months <laughs> and it kind of helped. I had all this time to go to poetry readings. Um, I wish I had that time now. <laughs> I mean, and I, it was funny. I was published by, it's like all those synchronicities that happen in life. I was published by this great journal called 32 Poems. Shout out to 32 Poems, submit your work. Um, and I happened to be emailing the editor like my first few weeks and I'm like, do you know any poets in San Antonio? He's like, yeah, I know too. Joshua Robbins and Laura Van Pruyen. He's like, hey, Laura's having a reading in a week. Go to it. So I went to it. <laughs> and it was at um, 
moniker Beethoven, you know, Beethoven moniker, sorry. And Sheila Block was reading with Laura. And that was like one of my first poetry readings. And um, and then Josh was super sweet. And he, he said, oh, yeah, that's a great reading. Go to it. So I had this luxury of time. And it was a really nice way to first see the city. I did it through a poet's eyes. Mm. Um, and I felt like I've never felt so happy to be unemployed. <laughs> it's interesting that you know you had this luxury of time but now you write this poem that's about the the terror of time right 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 where does yeah. where does that stem from these days i'm probably being 55 <laughs> it's also um i feel like we have a very delicate dance with time i mean most of the time we're not even thinking about it but it's kind of always there in the background, right? It's like we're counting the minutes or the hours. And I just decided to approach it straight on. And it's weird. Time's weird. I mean, we, we've we broken up into 24 hours, but I don't think time cares about what we do to it. <laughs> you know what I mean? I think we've done that for our own comfort so we can count it and keep control of it. But it's actually, you know, Einstein obviously was the first one to say it's it's not measurable in the way we think and it can do really strange things. And I, um, so I guess I'm a twin and I, um, you know, I was kind of a surprise as my one poem mentions. And I feel like that whiff has always carried itself with me. Like I'm surprised I'm on planet earth. <laughs> and I think that always makes me a little bit aware of just, how delicate a balance each day is. And mm. I'm not the first person to have these thoughts, of course, but um, I'm maybe slightly obsessed with the passing of time. So it's not a surprise in my in my good old fifties that I would write a poem more directly about it. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You kind of stole my question. Uh, oh. Cause I was going to say earlier, earlier I was going to say, you know, I've, sp I've heard you speak a little Spanish and mm -hmm. pronounce some names in Spanish. And that's because you lived in Spain. Um, is there an influence of that in your work, of, of your time there? Oh, sure. Oh, yeah. That was a, I mean, hablo espanol, pero es un poquito. I mean, my, I, I feel like it's super rusty now, but man, canta, you know, el idioma, mm. the, um, la, la, you know, the idioma. Like, that's how rusty it is. But I actually still stream in it at times. Oh. And um, I spent six pivotal years in Madrid. So I taught ESL. Um, I spent my junior year abroad in London, which was a long time ago, but it totally gave me the travel bug. <laughs> and um, I was lucky. It was like in the 1980s. I'm going to date myself where it was actually kind of affordable to be in London with American dollars. I don't know if I could do it now if I was, you know, 20 trying to do my junior year abroad. But I loved London and it, it was the first time I'd ever been to Europe. And I really just found out how much I love travel. So I always promised myself I'd live abroad again. So, but it took a while. I, you know, taught high school for a year, as I was telling you, Eddie, before the show at a great school called McDonough School outside of Baltimore. I went to Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, which is, you know, an interesting city in and of itself. Um, and then stayed on, taught high school, L worked at a great bookstore cafe the year after I taught high school called Louis Bookstore Cafe. I don't know if it's there still, but they hired artists for the waiting staff. Mm. So, and that was the year I applied to my MFA in creative writing. So I waited tables. Um, I had some great 
fellow artists, really talented visual artists. They had a gallery show for all the working staff and I framed one of my poems and put a price on it and <laughs> it up and sell. But I was like, hey, you know, they're putting their work up. I'm going to put mine up. But that was kind of a wonderful year. Um, and you learn a lot about people in restaurants. If any of you have waited tables, oh my God, the strangest mm -hmm. things happen when you're <laughs> waiting, when you're serving food in restaurants. Um, but um, so that was kind of important. And then, you know, I decided, you know, I went to graduate school in Seattle and I still had the travel bug. And so I finally just looked into ESL jobs. And back then it was pre-internet. So, you know, you'd get like the book at the library, be like, teach abroad. <laughs> and I, um, I, you know, sent out my CV to these different schools and I kind of got hired remotely. I think they were just psyched I had a master's. It wasn't like the bar was very high. Because, um, <laughs> you know, so I saved up money. I didn't have a lot of money. I had a one-way ticket, which you're not really supposed to do when you go abroad. You know, I was going to be, I was terrified they were going to ask me for my return. But the minute I landed, I felt at home. Mm. And I didn't know the language, but the Magellanians are extremely understanding if you're not fluent. And I sounded like crap in the beginning. I was like, hola, como estas? And they were kind of like, and then slowly but surely, you know, you know, I, um, you know, blah, blah, blah. Like I started sounding better. It took a while. Okay. <laughs> but they're patient with you. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I, um, you know, found an apartment. They had this thing called, um, oh my God, what was that called? El Segundo Mano, which was kind of like their village voice. And you could put in, you know, you know, things going, I need a roommate. So I found these four roommates you know one was uruguayan the other one was british the other one was spanish we all hung out shared this restaurant i mean this um apartment it was kind of fun but that began my six year chapter in mm. madrid and i taught esl it was under the table <laughs> and um but the Baseta was it was like you could live there and it was affordable without making a ton of money and then like the second year i met my husband william glenn he was a friend of a mutual american friend we had a beloved friend of ours and um, it all went from there. And I was, but I think being abroad was, you know, for example, like Magellanos would be like, oh, we're going to go to Cuba. I'll be like, what? Well, Cuba to them was just another Caribbean island with great beaches. Mm. <laughs> you know, it's like, whereas and as an American, you're so schooled to think like Cuba with a capital C. And that's when I was like, okay, my concept of that country has been completely politicized, mm. <laughs> you know. Um, you're much more, you know, geography is important, right? So when you're in Spain, you're closer to these other countries and places. And that affects people's mentality towards mm. life. They're much more aware of having to work with other countries because they're like rubbing shoulders, right, with France. And um, and then they're very articulate, very cultured, the Spanish. And we just learned a ton from them. That's and we had a lovely time. It's a lovely city, Madrid. It's not too expensive. There's a mm. lot of great cafes, amazing museums. So I do like to write acrostic poetry. And I think it began at the um, the Bonamitsa Tisim, which is one of their beautiful private museums. It's like right on the big El Paseo de Castellano. That's like their big, big boulevard. Mm. And they just had amazing art there. And they had an art on Dutch landscape. And here I am with my Dutch background. And I kind of get a <laughs> So those were like my first ekphrastic poems, you know? So I just think I imbibed all of the richness of being in a European city and we met great friends. Now there's a, yeah. there was one thing you said that kind of stuck out to me. 
Yeah. I mean, there's lots. It's a great experience. <laughs> uh, you said you were working under the table. So then that means that you were uh, an illegal, an undocumented immigrant in Spain, yeah. America. Yeah, but, well, it was, I was working That's for which, you know? What's that? That's quite the switch. Yeah. Well, I worked for some cowboy establishments where they were like, you know what it is? It wasn't uncommon in Spain. A lot of Spaniards worked under the table because the tax structure, I mean, I probably shouldn't be saying this. I don't know. The tax structure was so like, it was hard on people. And so it was kind of an accepted thing. And then they became part of the European Union. That all changed. <laughs> okay. But um, it was almost, it was like a normal thing. It was like Spaniards were working under the table. And then some schools, obviously, you had to have, you couldn't work under the table, you know. And then I went into more private tutoring for myself. And I, um, and then we were going to become legal and stay there. And that was kind of a difficult decision we went through. So if we had stayed longer, we were, there was an amnesty where they eased the process for you to become legal and we were going to go through that. So we wouldn't have done that ad infinitum, but we definitely were doing that for the first chapter there. Yeah. So we've got a couple of uh, great questions from the comment section. Um, <laughs> one, I just want to clarify, this is my like NPR ness coming in wherever like a phrase or something is said that people don't know what it means. They ask what an ekphrastic poem is. And just to quickly answer that, it's a, basically a poem that's inspired by a painting, a photograph, a work of art, and an image that then inspires a poem. Um, but then we were asked, do you think the travel bug will hit again? Or do you see yourself settling somewhere permanently eventually? Um, good question. I mean, I mean, obviously now as Americans, it's a little hard to travel, right? <laughs> um, we're going through this pandemic. Um, I did recently renew, actually, I let my passport expire, which is not like me. And I felt that was kind of symbolic. Mm. And um, I recently renewed it and I actually sent it in in February, right before the pandemic hit. You know, I just did it by mail and um, it got super delayed because of course the passport department obviously, you know, wasn't having a normal spring. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, they were obviously people were being furloughed. I'm sure they had a lot of adjustments, mm -hmm. but I, I, I did get it. So I have a smacking new passport, shiny and ready to be used. And I, um, my husband and I miss travel, you know what I mean? So I feel like there probably is some of it in my future. I can't, I can't predict how it will exactly happen, but um, there's always that idea of, we love travel so much that of course we'd want to do some again. But I also think about, you know, settling more permanently. I've been a bit of a nomad in my life. I've, you know, I'm in San Antonio now for five years and, mm -hmm. um, you know, I kind of in five years, eight year pockets and places, but I'm in my fifties now. And I feel like that sense of having to jump to another place is calming down. Mm -hmm. um, but that doesn't mean I don't want to do more travel. I just don't know exactly how. So that has me with a big question mark above my head going, Hmm, I have to think about that. That mm -hmm. doesn't mean like going, cause my sister lives in London and I have these two amazing twin nieces who are 18 and really wonderful. So I would love to go there just to see them for two weeks. But in terms of like, or go back to Spain. My husband and I talk about that. We have some good friends there we haven't seen for years. And, and there's a sense of loss there. I think we'd love to connect with some of them again. Um, I'd love to go to Turkey. I, I taught ESL in New York and I had this great Turkish student. I've always wanted to go to Istanbul. Um, 
and then Morocco. Believe it or not, I lived in Spain for five years, six years, and didn't make it to Morocco. That's kind of horrible. <laughs> <laughs> so, so there's still an itch there. It's just kind of shifted in terms of other priorities in my life. But I would love to still travel more. Hmm. Yeah. Now you, you yeah. talked about some of the poets that you met when you first got here, and um, but now as executive director of Gemini Inc., you um, are part, Gemini Inc. is itself an, uh, a writing community and uh, it's a great writing community. Now, what I'm wondering is, um, it seems to foster that spirit of community. Is that on purpose or is that by accident? Okay, I, I managed to open up another window. <laughs> so, um, just repeat the last part of that, Eddie, because I want to do sure, your- Yeah, part. like, I mean, is, is the community uh, totally intentional and, or is it a little bit by accident and a little bit of both? Um, how, how is it that we've got a great writing community, um, with Gemini Inc? I mean, I feel, I mean, I've always been impressed by the community here. One, it was, um, very warm and welcoming. Like I said, those four months when I was unemployed, <laughs> um, I would, one, there were so many things going on. <laughs> I was just like, cause I lived in New York for a while and God knows there's a ton of poetry events there, but it can take you like an hour and 15 minutes to go from one part of Manhattan to the other mm. by subway. It's not like everything feels around the corner. Um, I, I feel like one, people have always said that San Antonio is kind of, a, it's a big city of course, but it's got a small town feel. Mm -hmm. And I think the literary community benefits from that for some reason there's a real intimacy with the feeling of the community here for me, where there's events happening at so many different places. People seem really supportive of each other. Um, I also think the Latinx influence, there's amazing poets here with a real rich history and the diversity of voices is a key part of it. Um, and I think people like to help each other out. They don't seem, so there's a lot of great collaborating going on we have a city with a poet laureate. You know, we have a city that has a department of arts and culture. That's not true for all cities. And I feel like that's a wonderful thing. There's some structures in place to help promote the arts. That's just wonderful. We need more and more. I mean, the pandemic's been an interesting time. Um, of course, when a crisis hits, arts are not only always the first thing funded, okay? And there's very good reasons for why that's happening. But I also think people have realized because of the strange isolation we've gone through, how much the arts are needed. Mm. Um, so it's been an interesting time for people to realize literary community, you know, artistic communities are not a sideline part of life. People need it you know, for um, mental health support, community, not feeling alone, and just opening up your mind and your perspective on things. These are not small parts of life, right? So I'm kind of going off on that. But I also think there's something kind of organic that can't be fully explained about why the community is so great here. Um, and I feel like there's a lot of writers I don't know yet, and I need to get to know them. Um, so I'm always open to people suggesting new writers to teach for us or read for us or because it's um, there's a lot of great voices in just our city alone that um, mm -hmm. I would like, to, and I know some great poets, and I'm so happy. Like, you know, I'm getting to know Chibi's work more and more, and he's great. And Eddie, you're great. But I know there's other writers, and not just poets, fiction writers, prose writers that, you know, mm -hmm. I, I still want to get to know. So it feels like a, just very a rich web of possibilities literarily here. Um, 
And I hope I've somewhat explained that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> Uh, now, before we look to the future, because I do want to ask about that, because you mentioned like times are changing. We're in this kind of liminal space right now, you know, so yeah. I want to get to that. But first, I want to ask about the past. You know, you've been here in San Antonio for about five years. Uh, circa 2018, you took over as executive director of Gemini Inc. What are in the past few years, what are some of the initiatives that you've kind of like spearheaded, championed, saw through and how has that impacted the literary community here in San Antonio? Okay, interesting question. Um, I mean, one thing that's happened is um, we started online classes in 2018. Mm. I believe it or not, my first creative writing workshops were virtual mm. ones. So you were ready for this pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> as ready as you'd ever want to be. Um, I taught my first creative writing classes for this wonderful organization called the Poetry Barn. And this is a huge shout out to Lisa Kiernan who runs it out of upstate New York. Um, believe it or not, it was through being published in a journal called um, called The Arsenic Lobster. Isn't that a great name for a journal? <laughs> <laughs> and the poetry editor contacted me and they're like, hey, you know, we like your work. Would you want to teach a poetry workshop connected to this journal? Is this online? um co-op they called it a poetry co-op that offers online classes and she used wet ink which is a very dynamic platform we're actually using it at gemini inc right now for our asynchronous classes the ones that are available 24 7 um, where you kind of have a lesson posted once a week and people can access it any time of day and there's a lot of written back and forth and a lot of rich commentary offered on your work when you post it hmm. so we're doing that and zoom but that all stemmed from the poetry barn. So the long and short of it was we applied for a grant from the Kronkowski Foundation and that we put that into place. Mm. And so that was kind of just getting going when I became ED. So that's, and so, and now of course, we were very grateful for that in the spring. It allowed Gemini to pivot more easily because we didn't have to come up with an online platform. We could expand what we had. And then like everyone, we were scrambling to try to learn as fast as we could. <laughs> about Zoom and what literary community can be um, in the virtual world. And we're still learning. Um, I, other initiatives is I did start the Summer Writers Conference when I was literary programs director and I carried that into being ED and I'm very proud of that. Um, it became kind of a great three day, we call it a three day pop-up literary village right in downtown San Antonio in July when it's hot, <laughs> but it seemed to fill a gap. Um, in small conferences in this part of the country, because we got great poets like from the Rio Grande Valley, like Eddie. I met, you know, Edward Vidalre and Robin Carstensen because of that conference. Mm. Um, and I think that's been one thing that's been carried on through my um, ED ship, and that we we do we're doing a lot of programming regionally where we're like mm. like we had Emmy Bettis, our wonderful Texas State Poet Laureate teacher workshop this spring. You know, obviously Zoom made that a little easier, but there was also some connections with the Rio Grande Valley poets that made that it made it that much more natural to reach out to her. Mm. You know what I mean? Um, I also think they're doing terrific things there. And um, you know, we I feel like we can only learn from some of the amazing things they're doing, you know, in that area with poetry and the literary arts. Um, but that is something that we've continued with our conference, even though it took a pause last summer. And it's obviously coming into play very nicely in this new virtual era. We seem to find <laughs> um, I also 
Yeah. <laughs> I also very much care about diverse voices and I'm, we're always working with my team. I have a very talented team, you know, Florinda Brown, Anissa Nofre, Joshua Cantu, um, and just picking the brains of our community about making sure we have diverse voices represented. Sheila Block, I was doing a lot of great work with that. That meant a terrible amount to me. So I've, my aim is to continue that, right? And that's been one thing I've been really working on. I also have enjoyed how we've gotten to know the spoken word poets and we're, and the, and we're learning from them and we're doing, you know, so that kind of outreach into the communities felt very healthy for Gemini Inc. Um, a lot more work to do, obviously. I think we have programming in some parts of the city more than in others and we have to work on that. Hmm. Um, I just love the unexpected. I just love creating an event where people who didn't think they would be hanging out together are hanging out together. Mm. Where poets or prose writers who think who would maybe not normally think about being in a reading, they're in the reading together. And this chispa, as they say in Spanish, happens. Mm -hmm. And my most exciting times as ED is when I see that unfold. <laughs> and then, of course, when I see voices bloom, you know, I, I just... You know, like Jill Reyes Boitel, you know, is, you know, she didn't need Gemini to teach her anything, but, you know, I just happened to meet her when she was taking a workshop with Laura Van Pruyen. Now she's teaching for us. And that's just such a wonderful evolution to see. Yeah. And she's got her book out. And we want 5,000s of those. You know what I mean? That's what we're all about, just to meet you where you are as a writer and take you as far as you can go. And so whatever we do to feed that is what gets me really excited as ED. Um, and our youth programming that Florinda's run, running means a lot um, because those kids do amazing things, okay? <laughs> so we love the idea of, of getting that third grader or that five-year-old like writing ways they didn't think was possible. And that voice can that voice is always ready to come out, right? So, so I think as ED, anything to kind of keep that really nurtured and grow it and have a surprising really creative things keep happening in the best possible way and represent uh, you know all the amazing voices in this country which come from so many amazing backgrounds that's the richness of this country and to show that in our programming and you know sometimes we'll make mistakes and we'll learn from it but to always have that on you know have that part of our mission right yeah. so that's a part that i really get thrilled by now um <clears throat> you do a lot as the executive director uh, <laughs> How do you balance that with being a working poet? Um, it hasn't been easy. <laughs> um, one thing I've learned is that one, I have a great some great um, poetry uh, support groups, like poetry writing groups. Like I'm in a great group that Jim Lavia Havlin runs at Senor Veggie, you know, down in, um, you know, just down in, uh, you know obviously towards the south side of town, um, which is a little bit on pause now. We have to kind of make a Zoom version of it, but that group's been extremely helpful for me. Like Carmen Tafoy is in there and Natalia Trevino and, um, you know, and Naomi when she, you know, Naomi comes and that's great too. And it meets once a month, which isn't too frequent. <laughs> okay. I think if there was a group meeting once a week, I would get like, I go, you know, it would be too much, but that was a good pace for me. And it was a deadline to write something for. The other thing I've learned is you can write when you're grumpy. <laughs> you can write when you're tired. I used to have this really precious idea of what I needed to write a poem. 
And you know what's happened? Because I'm so busy as ED, sometimes I come to me, I'm like, oh, heck, I just got to write something. It's actually kind of helped me a little bit. Like, mm -hmm. I'm not over obsessing about the writing process. Um, this part of it that's a little hard is I used to be quite good about submitting my work. To me, it's part of the writing process because when you are sending something off to a journal, it makes you kind of eye your work in a way that you might not if you're not sending it out and someone who doesn't know you is reading your work. It helped me revise more sharply and better. Mm -hmm. um, that's been a little harder to do. Like I'll get the poem done. I'll be revising it. I don't have as much time to submit, but that's all on me. You know, that's kind of discipline. So I'm trying to kind of eke that back into my writing time. Mm -hmm. um, but there's some days when I don't write enough, I start getting really grumpy. My husband can tell you about it. So <laughs> I have to, and I'm not centered, you know what I mean? So I, I'm, I'm not a better ED being like that. I'm not a better anybody. So it is a, a kind of a, a, a week by week challenge, but I, I do try to write, um, and just keep it steady enough, mm. you know? Well, one of the things that you're doing right now is you're putting together this third book that you mentioned. Yeah. Um, how has that process been? Cause you said you're a slow collector of, <laughs> you know, how's that process of putting this book together been? Um, I mean, I have, a lot of I find chapbooks a little easier because it's like 20, 25 pages of poem, po poetry, maybe 30. And it's easier to find like one theme to bind them. Mm. For me, when I get to a book that's over 40 pages, it becomes a little bit of a, a, a process of a cool. I just open up a file and start throwing poems in there. <laughs> um, and then I have to print it out. And I have about 50 pages now and I'm kind of at this process now where I'm like, if I've gotten several poems published, I know I've revised them enough. Poets I trust have looked them over, given me feedback. I start putting them into the file and then maybe there's a few rougher ones in there that might not make the final cut for the book. Um, and I just start playing around. It's kind of like a little poetic jigsaw puzzle. And <laughs> I try to see what poem wants to be next to another poem. Poems will tell you, mm -hmm. like, I'm not, I don't belong there. You're moving me. You know what I mean? I mean, they have a way of talking to you. Uh -huh. right? um, but I like the process of putting a book together. It can be kind of gratifying to see this kind of fabric of poetry building. And then you pick up on themes. You're like, oh my God, I wrote five poems about sleep. I must be obsessed. Like you don't realize it sometimes until you start putting the book together, right? Mm -hmm. um, but my my first book was tough and I didn't know the order to put them in. And I'd sent it out to a few contests or more than a few and it was rejected. So my husband's like, throw it on the living room floor. I go, what? He's like, we're going to do a ritual. So we, it was like 80 pages. My first book was too long. We're in Brooklyn in this kind of small apartment. We throw the <laughs> the pages of the man all over the room floor. William takes olive oil and starts blessing the poems. <laughs> you know what I mean? It actually helped. It loosened me up because I was um, had prose poems and lyric poems, and I thought they couldn't go side by side, and I realized I was wrong. Mm. Then I started putting some prose poems I've been writing in that manuscript, and it kind of helped the manuscript. Um, so I think each book's a different process. 
I've always wanted to be one of those really interesting poets who has like a theme and they write from the beginning and they do research and it's all about that. I've not succeeded in writing a book. <laughs> that was gonna be my next question was like, did you start with a theme and then run with it or did you let the poems kind of like, you know, move the move the direction of the book? Come together. <laughs> I think the poems, I just, the poems tell me, you know, I might that might sound a little, you know, silly in some ways, but I don't know till I start looking at the whole manuscript and I just start, um, it's kind of fun. You can kind of nerd out on it a little bit. <laughs> you, know what I mean? like, ooh, yeah. you know, both these things kind of a similar sub, you know, sub theme. I'll put them together. Oh, they're two alike, separate them. Like in my last book, I had a, a lot of epistle poems like, and they were to the letters of the alphabet, like dear S, dear A. And I was really playing with sounds, like words that began with S and then the associations those words caused. It was fun. Well, I decided, okay, I'm not going to have like a middle section with all my dear A, S, you know, P poems or something. So I realized I should sprinkle them throughout the manuscript. So that was like one realization I came up with. Um, and it's kind of fun figuring out the sections if you even have different sections. Um, so I think it's an organic process for me. And I wish I was one of those, I kind of want to write a book of poems like on a visual artist and do research on them. That's where I don't have the time. I think mm -hmm. that's something that might be happening if I had a little more time to do like backstory research on someone. But um, maybe one day. Yeah. <laughs> Titles? Or do the title keeps changing? Oh, or, for this, this current that's a, in this process. To ask Eddie. Yeah. <laughs> the process I had. Okay, one. I have a poem called Noon, and I was gonna <laughs> entitle the book Noon, but then I got the response that you guys are giving me right now. Like, it's not too interesting. I <laughs> we said nothing. <laughs> oh, I'm like, you I'm in my noon of my life you know i'm like talking about time a lot um so that is it obviously a, a working title it won't be the final one you know i guess I what, know. I you have I one working title right now but do you have the does your title seem to change as you move along and like um you you gather more poems you put them in different orders like uh and you said you know i, I know a lot of poets that start out with a title and a theme and then they write <laughs> that Oh, that's that's great. I, that's an interesting idea. Is, you know, is the title come up at the end? I guess is the question. It definitely does for the book. It definitely doesn't come first for me. At least it hasn't to date. Um, I sometimes, you know, you can take like a title of a poem and you make that the title of the book, but you don't have to do that. Poets do all kinds of things, right? Um, but like my last book, Kiss Hierarchy, was a title of a poem that I thought was kind of pivotal to that book. So I ended up naming the book, you know, the book after that. But I didn't, that was not the first title. <laughs> I definitely have a lot of titles. So news going to get shuffled away, you know. Um, <laughs> I might put something else, you know what I mean? But I'm kind of like titleless right now. Oh, room service. A nice one. Oh yeah, I so, think we all know that like the first title is never the final title yeah. ever, you know. I think when I was in graduate school, I had this cuz they make, you know, you write a thesis and that was a really good experience. I had this really horrible title like The Random Seeds of Confidence. 
I'm like, I probably shouldn't even put that out there. And that's like, when you do a thesis, I went to the University of Washington in Seattle, like they, they, they bind it and put it in the library. So it's there in the library. <laughs> like it exists. Title. So it never got published. It was, you know, a few poems got published in journals, but thank God that title didn't make it out in the world as a book title, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, uh, Eddie and I have both published a book in the past year. So like everything that you're talking about, I I think I can speak for you too. Like I totally relate. Like yeah, 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 that yeah. whole process and just like throwing everything out in the living room and shuffling things around and mm -hmm. all of that. It can be uh, chaotic and frustrating. So uh, best you. of luck as you finish. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, wish me luck, yeah. Putting, putting it together. So you've <laughs> got that. The olive oil. I mean, that's a new one. That we're gonna <laughs> yeah, that's that a new was one. a fun one. Well, it's kind of quirky. Well, obviously, we've been in Madrid and Spain and, you know, olive oil, like, is the beginning. You know, that's such a key part of the cuisine and culture there. So I think that played into it. But it helped make it kind of mysterious and fun. Mm. Yeah. And, um, and I got more relaxed about what happened when the book you know, when the, with, when the book came together as a whole. Yeah. Now, how do you feel after people have read your book and then they start talking to you about the book and then they tell you what they think the theme is when you didn't have that theme in mind? How does that, how, what's that, what's that like? Or how does that make you feel? I always think it's great when people find things in my poems I didn't know would be in there. Um, so I, I get kind of, I, I really enjoy that when people give me their interpretations of my poems. I mean, if it's something that seems really off and I'm like, oh my God, it's not what I expected. We might have an interesting conversation about it, but you know, the reader's the other side of that equation whenever you're writing a poem. You know, poems have all this blank space, right? <laughs> and the readers are filling it in. So um, you can't control that, right? <laughs> so, um, that's part of the mystery of being a writer. We're writing alone in our rooms. Um, and I do enjoy sharing my work. I think that kind of completes the process for me. And um, and then I learn a lot from how people respond to my work. And sometimes it's helped influence me write, writing a new poem based on something someone said about one of my pieces. Um, and then you're like, they read me. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, as we know, <laughs> so it's always flattered to be read, even if maybe you don't agree with every interpretation, right? Um, but most of the time it's been a positive experience for me because it's just super interesting to see how people, you know, read your work. I remember when I was, you know, a young poet and I was in Seattle and we were reading at this quirky small bookstore on Bainbridge Island because there's all these islands um, right off of San Antonio, I mean, right off of Seattle. And you can take a ferry there. And I remember it was kind of a compliment. A guy came out to me and the other poet and he goes, I thought poetry wasn't about everyday life. Like your poems were about stuff that's real to me. And I was like, that's a great compliment. I'll take that. You know what I mean? So, um, you know, I, you just never know how people are going to respond. Right. Mm -hmm. I haven't had, um, you know, I've had someone have an antagonistic reaction to a poem which you know obviously can happen i would i would just hope we could have a good conversation about that yeah so you've got this third book uh to look to finish putting together and look forward to in the future uh now that we're living in these really strange strange interesting times <laughs> yeah <laughs> um what do you see the san antonio literary community how do you see it evolving 
you know, how do you see it growing moving forward? Um, no, it's a very interesting question. I mean, I, I've been telling people, cause you know, you're an executive director of an arts nonprofit during a pandemic and people are like, sometimes they're like, Oh great. Your doors are open. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, um, and they're kind of like, how's it going? I mean, the way I've summed it up and obviously, you know, um, businesses of all types are going through so much right now. Nonprofits of all types are going through so much right now. It's been a time of incredible challenges. Um, and then some unexpected silver linings. Um, I mean, the one thing that I see that's positive coming out of this is literary communities become much more elastic. Okay. Mm. And that it's funny. We had YouTube before we had, you know, Skype and everything, but with the real one, it means it's kind of a nice thing. Like we need each other. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like oh, yeah. immediately became like it blew up because it was easy. It was user friendly and we just needed to see each other and connect. Okay. So that there was something nice about that, you know, um, difficult as it was, because obviously we'd rather be able to hang out in person, but I do see some positive things coming out of it. Literarily speaking for San Antonio, because Texas is like a really big state. Um, and there's so many great voices all over the state, but it would be hard for Gemini, for example, to bring a lot of visiting authors because we, you know, we only can afford so many, you know what I mean? Great as they are, we'd love to have a million, don't get me wrong. But you know, airfare, hotel, it's always more to bring a visiting writer, right? Um, and I would, I still wanna bring visiting writers with hotel and airfare when we can, but there's been a really nice thing where I can have writers from all over the country teach a workshop for us. And it's very seamless now. Mm. Okay. Now it's via zoom. You don't have the charm and brilliance of having them in the same room as you, but there's some, I found for all its quirks, zoom has kind of a weird intimacy to it. You know, um, one blessing is we've started a statewide virtual book club. Thanks to David Samuel Levinson. It was his idea. And Blake Kimsey, who's the ED of um, writing workshops, Dallas, so one very positive thing is statewide collaborations have become much easier. So we have this monthly book club, it's called the Big Texas Read, and we're hosting Texas writers from all over the state. Okay, we had Kendra Allen last week, this amazing African-American essayist. Um, she's in Dallas, you know, I mean, she gets on Zoom, it's like she's right there with you in your own house, almost, <laughs> right? Um, so, that's been a really positive thing that we, you know, this would not have happened without the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So suddenly, and then there's a chance for San Antonio writers to be also exposed to a national audience, maybe a little bit more easily as they mm -hmm. deserve to be. Okay. One of my goals as ED is to create this great highway. I come from New York. So I, I my first thing was to create a nice literary highway between New York and, and San Antonio. So you know, the first writers conference we had in 2016, which I did with Sheila Black, who was a great ED to work with, was I brought down some New York poets who I knew were amazing and I wanted people to experience them. So I brought this, our wonderful friend, Odo Yuan Noel, who's a Puerto Rican New York poet. He now teaches at NYU. Amazing spoken word poet, came, taught a class. Um, and then Janet Kaplan, amazing poet, came to the conference. And then Patricia Spears Jones, this amazing, New York poet came to the conference and every time they came, they were like, Oh my God, I love San Antonio. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's then, not just the tacos. <laughs> yeah. And then cool things happen. Like 
you know, local poets who are really talented. Now they're getting published in some New York journals because, you know, Janet Kaplan started a journal called AMP out of Hofstra University. And that just makes me really happy. And not that they need Gemini Inc. to introduce them to national journals. They don't. But it just helped for them to meet some people in person that maybe they would not have otherwise met. Hmm. So we used to do that through the conference, through Humanities Texas, giving us a grant to pay for, like, the hotel and the airfare. Now we can do it much more seamlessly via Zoom. Mm -hmm. So I see that as a wonderful blessing. It's kind of opened our eyes to how easy it is to um, to be together, despite the fact that it's cyber and we're not <laughs> person. Yeah. But there's been some comfort in that. Um, so I see that. I see going forward. I mean, who knows? It's hard to predict. But the virtual platform of work writing workshops and, you know, collaborations and reading series and book clubs virtually, I think, will kind of continue in a way it wouldn't, might not have otherwise. And yeah. it will be maybe alongside the in-person events. And ideally, we'll find a great balance. And that will just help that many more vibrant voices find out about local writers. Local writers can mix with that many more authors and voices from other parts of the state, let alone, you know, the country and the state um, and the world. Okay, mm -hmm. like one of my interns this spring, we have a great um, connection to Trinity University and they give us great interns. He was in Honduras the whole time. I had a remote intern. Wow. <laughs> and, wonderful. and we had to keep watching the time difference because it's only an hour. It's like an hour earlier there. But, you know, he is in Honduras and I'm here and we're doing an internship, you know, so that would not have happened without the pandemic. Right. Yeah. But um, so I see that as a, a good thing, despite you know, obviously the difficulties our city's gone through and um, us wanting this pandemic to get the heck over with. Um, and then other things, you know, I just see, you know, Latinx authors and writers of color, I just see them blooming more and more and getting more attention. And I think we just have to really keep our eyes on that because there's such amazing work coming out of um, the diverse voices of our country. And I'm, you know, I'm happy to see that there's more attention on that now. And there's, there's been some, but it hasn't been enough. Hmm. And I just hope that, you know, that's a great thing to have keep moving forward. Like let's, let's hear from all of our writers and they have such important things to say. And we do need to, um, that diversity of point of view is pretty important. It's key. And um, it makes, we're all better off for it. Hmm. And I just see some amazing writing happening right now with hmm. writers of color. And so I just, you know, whatever we can do to help, you know, just all those voices be represented. Mm -hmm. So I see that, you know, hopefully getting, you know, just moving in the right direction and just, you know, America is, you know, I said, you know, a lot, haven't I? Um, America <laughs> is, it's hard to sum up this country, right? Mm -hmm. So I, and, but one thing it's great at is we do have a wide, wide tapestry of lives and points of views and ethnicities and, you know, everything that, the more that's celebrated, the better. So, you know, I well, see that, you know. Well, Alexander, you've done a lot <laughs> to uh, help facilitate that, to help uh, lift other people's voices up, uh, not just in your time here in San Antonio uh, or as executive director of Gemini Inc., but it seems in getting to know your story uh, throughout your entire life. So props to you and thank you to you. Um, this has been a really great conversation and we would love nothing more if you could close us out with one more poem. Sure, sure, sure. Let me quickly, I'm going to quickly choose. Um, <laughs> I'm going to do one from my, my previous book, Kiss Hierarchy. Um, 
Rain Mountain Press, just a shout out. Great small independent press in New York City. Um, I loved working with them. They published this. Um, Stephanie Dickinson, great editor. So I'm going to read a prose poem. And it's um, kind of quirky. It's called Lost Earring. And it looks, it looks like that. It's a prose poem, right? Um, and it's not too long. So Lost Earring. A poet once told me that he wrote a poem simply to write a poem. No other premise was required. I found that freeing. Another poet recently explained he had decided to study one word for a whole year. This poet had chosen the word and. How boring, I thought, until I paused to assess how much an and can connect. A carrot to a blushing radish? A melodramatic sadness to a scissor-sharp glee? Even a diamond-studded bride could be leashed tenuously to a cracked syringe glittering in a parking lot by applying this one-syllable conjunction. That's when I realized and was one of the primary colors of the language, like one of Rothko's blues receding further and further into his canvas, an unstoppable hallway of blue, an unraveling cobalt bandage, each day constructed from a series of ands, a chain link fence of small mouths opening, the lost earring shaped like a black tear my husband gave me, and the wedding I wish I'd attended in Northern Spain in my thirties, with that region's most famous cheese shaped like a woman's breast, and the trees so dense they emitted a chartreuse fog in the evenings. Lost Earring. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much for all that. And I love that when you said and, I, I chuckled too. Like, who does studies the word and? <laughs> Kids. But it came out. Well, thank you again uh, for anybody watching and listening. Uh, you can definitely follow uh, Alexandra on Instagram or Twitter, Alexander Vandekamp on Instagram, Alex Vandekamp on Twitter. Go buy her book, rainmountainpress.com slash poetry. Uh, and definitely find out more information about what Gemini Inc. is doing because they are doing amazing things all across, not just now, the city of Tan San Antonio. Everywhere. Everywhere. <laughs> so right. Gemini Inc. Gemini is not a tattoo company. People often think that. Not. I totally did. 100% <laughs> when I first moved to San Antonio and people were like, oh yeah, we're going to be working with Gemini Inc. I was like, what? Why? You're getting a tattoo? <laughs> yeah, I get phone calls with people thinking we're a tattoo parlor. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. I love yeah. it. Thank you, Alexander, for spending this uh, this evening with us. It has been a delightful conversation. Go enjoy your red wine, man. Thank you, and this was so great. Thank you so much, Chibi and Eddie and Rooster for inviting me. You guys are doing great stuff at the Blah Poetry Spot. And it was a delight to be a part of this tonight. So thank you so much. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> thank you. All right. So speaking of looking towards the future. Oh yeah, well. What do what do we got going on next week? September 15th to October 15th, for those of you who are who don't know, is uh, Latinx slash Hispanic Heritage Month, whatever we want to call it. We'll call it whatever we want to, you know? Mm -hmm. That mm -hmm. month. 
it's not really a month, but you know, that's the one the government gave us. <laughs> we, we had half of two months. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, so we're going to have a, a great lineup and I think we've already kind of put that out in the, on Facebook and Instagram. We've, we've put out our lineup, but next week kicking it off for us, uh, is an internationally re renowned poet, Joaquin Siwatanejo, who here <laughs> live. Multi-award-winning poets, multi-published poet, uh, educator. author, educator, mentor, uh, and not to mention just like a great guy all around. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> so we're excited to kick off uh, Latinx, Hispanic, whatever. And maybe not always brown. <laughs> month. Yeah. Heritage Month. That's just the beginning of a great lineup. Um, so if you want more information about what we have coming up in the future, please make sure you do follow the Blah Poetry Spot on Facebook or Write Art Out on Instagram. That's W-R-I-T-E-A-R-T-O-U-T on Instagram. And of course, if you want to hear, catch up on some of these past conversations of words and shit that maybe you have missed, we are now available via podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, so if you do listen to our podcast, like, review, subscribe, do all those good things so that we can keep bringing you some amazing conversations with poets week after week. Mm -hmm. Until then, that is Eddie Vega. And that is Chibi Ordunia. And, and this has been words. And shit. Y'all stay safe out there. Good night.